Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. So you're effing tired, eh? Eh? <laughs> Yeah. leave california and you start sounding like a midwestern uh yeah i'm a uh, dragging ass well at least it's a cute one <laughs> <laughs> good morning good afternoon good evening and good middle of the night to all our fellow travelers to whom i'm extremely grateful hello hello we i, I want to identify are. as dr stew and bliss is identifying as goddess bliss and no. uh <laughs> yes she is and uh i'm i'm you know i often use mockery as you know people mm. listening know that i use mockery and i think that actually um mocking can be necessary and effective when used properly and it also makes me feel good sometimes when you're helpless <laughs> when you're helpless to change something well I'm humor not- humor is a good thing taking things Taking it easy, tension is harmful, is one of the things they say in Al-Anon, which is a good little phrase. Um, But yeah, humor can be very helpful because things can be really intense and you only have one life. So you might as well laugh sometimes. We only have one life at a time that you can remember. Oh, someone's bringing in his wisdom game today <laughs> well it's not my zoom app because my zoom app keeps popping something up on my screen and if it keeps doing this i'm going to be very mocking of zoom so <laughs> okay well we got a lot to talk about today you've got a birth i want to hear about and we have a topic of low-lying placenta because we've had a lot of inquiries about that lately and there's a lot of gaslighting typical medical gaslighting going on about that but and then I have a whole bunch of updates and news stories, as usual. Brought, <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny, but I get all these messages, yep. as do you, from our fellow travelers. And I spend a lot of time on social media now, a lot more than I spent a year ago or two years ago, or certainly three years ago. And if I was still practicing, if I was still going to the office and going to birth, I don't, I don't even know how I'd have time for for gardening or sitting in my rocking chair on the porch or anything. Well, hopefully. Any of these important things. Prioritize those things instead of social media, I would hope. Well, but but you know what? The interest is growing and the movement and the movement is growing. The movement is growing and spreading across the world. It's awesome. And we we are, yeah, we're a small cog in that, but I'm very proud of us, our part in that. But there's so many great people out there. True. Yeah, I can't possibly keep up with all of them, but I I support every every one of them because people are waking up. So that's very cool. We Speaking of waking up, we we were late today because you didn't want to wake up. So because you were at a birth yesterday, I think. So tell us about that. Well, actually, yesterday we were supposed to record and we've just not been having the best of luck with things lately. Oh, yeah. Tell us, we, that was funny. We were on one podcast and we apologize for that. But, you know, people get sick and things happen. Yeah. Turning off my power for the entire day. I didn't have any Wi-Fi and the entire street was filled with trucks and workers and it was insane. So, so we, we postponed to today. And then of course I was at a birth. I was waiting for one last mama to deliver before 
taking my adventures this summer. And, you know, what was interesting about this one, Stu, is I tell my client, you know, people who interview me, some of my clients want to do all the tests and procedures, and some of them want to do none. And there's a whole bunch of people in between. Well, this is one of those moms who I really think that she wants to be doing an unassisted birth. I mean, like, that's just her vibe. So um, we basically sat downstairs. I did the birth with Alex Evangeliti because she was closer to this mom. This mom traveled an hour and a half to come see me prenatally in Santa Barbara. And probably because she knew that I would respect her wishes and not push her about stuff. So she didn't do barely any testing during her pregnancy, no ultrasounds, um, initial labs, but the rest of them, she all declined. No procedures for the baby. And when we got there, I texted them that we were there. It's her third baby. Um, and they're like, okay, we're good. And so then I said, okay, let me know if you want me to check vitals and listen to baby and, you know, and okay. And she asked me at one point to check on the baby. So I listened one time and, uh, I basically just handed her a towel after she <laughs> caught her own baby. I mean, and she didn't even want that at first, you know, she was like, it was absolutely beautiful to watch because it's, you know, what I hope for every woman to just have that trust in her body. I mean, they're very, they have a very strong faith practice, but just, you know, trust in her body and, and listen to her own instincts. It's just such a beautiful thing to support. Um, so that's what I did last night. It was a beautiful water birth. There's not much to say. Oh, you know, what's interesting too. No, it's black for this one. But I knew that this mom was going to decline Pitocin. And, you know, I mean, I think that if there was a serious thing going on where she wasn't feeling well, she may have been willing to accept it. I know that she, we were there for the just in case scenarios. But she probably, I think when it was all said and done, it was about 750, 900 cc's. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I kept talking to her. I said, that was a considerable amount. How are you feeling? You know? And she's like, fine. And, you know, it's one of those times we talked about that 500 cc's is really probably just normal and coming to like what an actual hemorrhage would be is probably closer to a thousand plus. And again, you're always looking at, right? Like we talk about, you only want to step in and do medical interventions if there's a clinical indication. So we have been taught that the cutoff is 500 cc's to start to evaluate what to do. She was firm. There was, she was having no symptoms, you know? And so I think it was more of a wait and, and see approach. And I think with these moms who really push the boundaries, we get to like really look at what would happen if no one was around, you know, and be able to like challenge our thought process a little bit more and our, what we say, it like, it like puts the, the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Right. So anyway, I thought that was, I thought that was really kind of interesting in evaluating and not jumping to the medication, which I, I shared on the podcast recently that that has been more and more my desire to dive deeper because I have met a lot of traditional midwives who pretty much never use Pitocin. They have other methods that they use, but mm -hmm. Pitocin is rarely, rarely something 
or if ever that they use. So, yeah. And I would encourage people to not use Pitocin if they can, if they don't need it. If it's not absolutely necessary, it's, it's, it's way, 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 way overused. And you know, when, yeah. when you were talking about this bleeding and what if she was alone and stuff like that, it made me really think about how the body is miraculous and how it works. And if you're bleeding really heavily, I mean, does happen that people bleed out and bleed to death. I mean, if you're in an accident, you cut an artery, you're going to probably bleed to death. But it, it's very unusual in this side of setting for that to happen, even unassisted, because what would happen is that your blood pressure would drop. You'd go to the ground, hopefully not boom, but you'd go to the ground. You might even pass out. But when your blood pressure drops to a certain point, the bleeding is going to slow down or stop. And nature will then take care of it. And you know, I mean, I know you see it in movies and TV shows where somebody looks like they're unconscious or they're dead and then they wake up and they were, you know, they, but that is actually the way the body can work. So I'm not encouraging, yeah. I'm not encouraging people to, loot, to bleed till their blood pressure bottoms out and they drop, they faint. But you, you said what would happen if they were alone? And most of the time nature would not let you die because it most doesn't benefit, it doesn't benefit nature to let you do that. But hemorrhage is the leading cause of death postpartum in the world for for moms so it is a real thing and it does happen people die from hemorrhaging all the time so it's something to be considerate about but i think that the what we've been taught in the cutoffs and overusing medications even within the midwifery community is something that i would like for us to continue to question and look at and evaluate okay yeah long, you know you said that you know it's it's like we we look at 500 cc's is when that's what they, and I know that you know that I know that you know that we don't like to use absolute numbers for anything, but we, when we're talking, sometimes we do that. But the truth is, those are guidelines because some people can lose 800 cc's and be perfectly fine. And some people can lose 250 cc's and almost go down or go down and need smelling salts and all that other stuff. So it really is individualized clinical judgment, not necessarily a number. And that's what that's really important. And um, just as a sort of tangential, but one of our fellow travelers in Czech, in the Czech Republic wrote me just a really, really brief thing. She said um, she was replying to one of our stories and, and she talked about in, in, Czech, in the Czech Republic, it's a rule to check the cervix every two hours. <laughs> mm -hmm. right. And I believe her. I believe oh. that the doctors in the Czech Republic probably do VAG exams every two hours. They're probably still plotting points on the Friedman curve. And with no regard for the, what the woman wants, no regard for the discomfort, no regard for the increased risk of infection, no regard for anything, because it's a rule, all right? We've got to stop this. Rules are for people in kindergarten, okay? Yes, we go in a line, we hold hands when we go to the art museum. That's a rule, that sort of thing. But for, for each individual adult and adult practitioner, the idea that we have to succumb to rules Put out, put forth by big government, big organizations, where one size fits all. It's got to stop. It's got to stop. And you know, on our podcast, <laughs> you know, rules is not a is a four letter word, even though it's five. But it's really we got to be really careful about saying that they have rules. So well, and you know what that also made me think about about this mom and and how I was challenged in this, even though I'm someone who really like tries to be as uninterventionalist as possible is because I knew how she felt about things. It changed the way that I approached her about anything, even the towel. I was like, would you like a towel? No, thank you. 
Is it okay if I take your blood pressure? Sure. Can I touch your stomach or would you like to check your fundus? You know, those kind of things that sometimes you just automatically are like, hey, I'm going to, I'm just going to check your fundus now. Right. Or you just pull on the baby or, you know, and I think that those things are also really important because this is an adult woman who's researched. She's smart. She's educated. She's done this before. So why are we telling her what to do instead of asking her how we can support her? Agreed. Agreed. So we want to do away with rules. We also want to be very careful about how they change the word, how they use the word definition now, because they, 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 they redefine things based on how it fits the narrative that they want you to follow. And I was, a lot of our listeners probably know this already, and I think I knew it too, but I was listening to podcast recently and they were talking about vaccine side effects. They were talking about the COVID-19 vaccine and they were talking about uh, that the definition of fully vaxxed, which is what Pfizer and Moderna and the FDA used to determine side effects was two weeks after the second shot. So you weren't fully vaxxed. So if you had a side effect after the first shot, if you had a side effect within the first week after the second shot, that was considered an unvaccinated side effect. So when they were going around saying things like, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated, it's, it's fascinating to me. So they looked into it and they, they found that 96% of people who got a reaction after their second shot got it within the first seven days. Well, yeah, that makes so, sense. Right. So those people would be labeled as unvaccinated. So funny. Weird. It's corrupt. It's it's corrupt yeah. beyond belief. Yeah. All right. One quick follow-up. Oh, go ahead. Of COVID-19 and all of that, yep. uh, Pfizer's paperwork, right, was released years the ago. The FOIA, yeah. 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 And uh, Naomi Wolf was just interviewed on Weston Price's podcast and talks about how They've synthesized this information. They've had uh, 350,000 experts, I believe, that helped synthesize this tens of thousands of pages of documents that was very um, technical. And and there's a book that was just released on Amazon. And I can't remember the name, so we'll put the link in show notes. But that might be something that some of our listeners would be really interested in reading because it's it talks about how they were very clear uh, what they were doing and the harm that was being done and we continued to move forward so and they knew, and they knew it yeah is this a book by Naomi Wolf or a book by somebody else um she was the one who helped organize the information with all of these experts okay definitely put it in the show notes currently i'm reading a book that somebody else recommended to me called turtles all the way down mm-hmm. and i'm going to like i like i did with Dissolving Illusions. Uh, once I finish the book, I'm going to make a pod. We're going to we're going to make a podcast out of it because, yeah, this is information that especially parents need to know because about the vaccine schedule. We're not going to. We'll get into that again at another time. Uh, a quick follow up. When people wrote wrote to us on Google Voice, I guess they spoke to us on Google Voice. They didn't write to us. By the way, that number is eight zero five three nine. Nine zero four three nine. And if you call and leave us a voicemail, sometimes we'll read them. Sometimes we'll respond. We can't promise to respond to all of them. But anyway, this is from Eris, and it was about fist bumping. <laughs> <laughs> so she had another theory, and so she was thinking about what I said about those doctors not wanting to shake your hand. And I had another thought. I have this feeling that eye surgeons, in particular, maybe I'm wrong, but they don't shake hands because surgery they do is so delicate, and their hands are like precious instruments. And I was thinking that maybe they don't 
shake hands because they don't want to be injured sometimes. So I'm, <laughs> so I'm questioning to myself, do people get injured with handshakes? That's not a thing that I, I know of. I mean, yeah, theoretically, somebody gripped your hand really hard. So I thought, well, you know, that's possible. But, you know, hands are valuable for, for clockmakers and for other people too. And I think they shake hands. So, so when I was in the eye doctor last week for my next checkup, I've got my surgery coming up in a week and a half. I asked him, why don't you, why don't you shake hands? And he said, he just, he's done fist bump for a really long time, long before COVID came out. And it felt like there were too many handshakes in the office all day long for him. And it wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't a germaphobe. He just said, just, just bumping fists was kind of like, Hey, that's just a guy thing. That's what I do. And okay, that makes sense. But the question is, why did the guy in North Carolina also do it? <laughs> <laughs> just for you, Stu. No, so you- that's why just wondering, is it, was it just coincidence or is it an ophthalmologist thing or what? I don't know. Don't think it's because they think their hands are so precious. I mean, they're out there, they're still at home gardening and they're still at home, like playing, you know, they play sports and stuff. So. No, but uh, you know, trying to think outside of the box and look at all the possible scenarios. It's possible. I like that. One of the great things that you can say to someone, if there's like, they're saying something that you don't necessarily agree (laughs) with, want to like have any conflict with them is that you can say you might be right yeah we've we've talked about this on the podcast before you know you might be right you might be right Right. absolutely that that works really really well when you don't want to get in with somebody because you know that polar opposites and neither one of you is going to convince the other one and so you just move on and really do we know everything we don't so we don't (laughs) i don't I won't speak for all-knowing. No, no, I don't know everything either. But in the category of do we really need a study for that? Yes, I love this. Comes this research from the Journal of Reproductive Medicine (laughs) called, well, I'll summarize it in three words. Midwives do good. Okay. I like that. The title of the article is People Receiving Midwifery Care During Childbirth Report Positive Experiences. Woohoo! No midwives. I mean, come on. Do we really need that? Yes. By the way, I don't know if anybody's listening just noticed what the title, but there's something wrong with that title. And I will mock it for just a second. Okay. People receiving midwifery care. Receiving. No. People. People. (laughs) It goes goes like this. People giving birth, otherwise known as women. Okay. Report more positive experiences when cared for by midwives in both hospitals and in the community setting than by physicians, reported the uh, Journal of Reproductive Health. Additionally, those receiving midwifery care at home or birth centers reported better experiences than those in hospital settings. All right. So 88% of births are attended by physicians while midwives are attend 12%. By the way, I did not know that. That's including CNMs, I guess, in the hospital. Yeah, but I don't even, th- I, you know, maybe... I don't know where they got that number. There's no references because mm. this is an article summarizing the, the, the journal article. But, but I didn't think it was that high. That means one out of every 10 pregnant women in the United States is taken care of by a midwife. Just didn't think that that was that high. Yes, I know only one and a half percent are doing it at home, but I didn't think a lot of practices employed midwifery care, at least through, through and through. Wow. I, think, I think it's great. The problem, of course, is those midwives that work in the hospitals are often restricted by what they can say and do. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I don't want to get into too much trouble, but I have a well, hard time with 
the label midwifery care is just changing and we don't all practice the same and you know so okay so yeah i think people understand where we're going measures of quality around maternity care often focus on clinical markers such as complications or rates of c-section leaving the lived experience of childbearing people unmeasured and neglected it just has a hard time coming off my tongue when i say that the living experience of childbearing people unmeasured and neglected so this gets back to my all that matters in in the medical model is a live baby in the bassinet theory and how the baby gets there doesn't really matter to the, the medical model in contrast to the standard obstetrical model midwifery care is rooted in a philosophy that honors pregnancy and birth as a physiological social and cultural process not solely a clinical event, said Mimi Niles, PhD, MPH, and CNM, assistant professor at NYU. The care relationships between the client and the midwife serves as the primary vehicle through which values such as autonomy, respect, and informed decision-making are operationalized to preserve an overall satisfying experience of childbearing. Okay, so they look at 1,771 responses to a survey, and they look at four categories, communication, decision-making autonomy, respect, and mistreatment, and time during, and time spent during visits. I guess that's five. Okay. Uh, and they said, compared to those cared for by physicians in the hospital, individuals cared for by midwives in community settings had more than five times the odds of experiencing higher autonomy and were five times more likely to report that their providers showed them high levels of respect. Imagine that. Shocking, I know. This is is why I put it in the category of, do we really need a study for that? But the fact that there's a study in a a reputable journal that that says that, okay, great. So I'll I'll just leave it at that. They say, our findings add to evidence showing the model itself seems to be strongly influenced by the setting in which care is given within community settings, home, and freestanding birth centers, offering greater likelihood of support and the hospital settings being limited by the constraints of a medical approach to care, which de- deprioritizes experiential outcomes. Mm-hmm. Okay, which is, what I, which is what I was kind to say earlier. Midwives have their hands shackled Yeah, in the hospital setting. Yeah, and birth is not a medical event. Only when it is. That's right. It shouldn't be, shouldn't be thought of as a medical event. We need to change the way it's thought of occasionally it's a medical event. It's like driving a car is not an emergency room event, but occasionally it can be. Okay. Yeah. So we have a new sponsor, Bliss. Dr. Lindsay has been our friend for a really long time. She's been a birth colleague and her company BirthFit is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum. Isn't that awesome? Like any phase of the journey, you can use their programs. They even have a B community where you can go to if you're trying to conceive or if you know you want to in the next one to three years, which is awesome. They have a lying in program, which is in the first you know beginning of postpartum. Like what they say is even a day after you can start to get into this. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focus on reconnecting and honoring your body. In the immediate postpartum period, they use breathing exercises, visualization, belly massages. So cool. And then they have an extended program called Postpartum Program. It's a 12-week program focused on building a base level of general physical fitness with simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. And all of the work that they do um, requires 
no or minimal equipment. Um, so you can do it right out of your home. Um, and then of course they have the prenatal program. They have a, a basic 30 day program where no equipment is necessary. I guess you can kind of test out and see if you like their, their vibe. And then they have a more extensive pro program, the prenatal training program, which is a full-term strength and conditioning program. Um, I mean, wow. Yeah. I, I've, no, I've known Lindsay for a really long time. She's a, she was a chiropractor in LA before, before they fled and moved to Texas. <laughs> uh, anyway, we, we support them wholeheartedly because this kind of a program is great for our, our clients and most of our listeners. Yeah. Um, so you go to birthfit.com. That's B-I-R-T-H-F-I-T.com. Use the code INSTINCTS1, all caps, INSTINCTS1, with the number, not the not one, but the number, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program, or use code INSTINCTS2 to get a discount on the basic postpartum program. All right? So we love BirthFit. Uh, it's OB and midwife approved. That's right. And right. please support them. And congratulations on your pregnancy, Lindsay. Thanks for joining the team. Welcome to the Birthing Instincts neighborhood. This one's a good question for you because this was from listener Jasmine. And I don't really know this stuff that much. So maybe you can help with this. I'm interested to hear your take on the scarcity of NRP certification classes for LMs and CPMs specifically. NARM just increased the requirement that we have to do the advanced NRP to renew our CPM. And I think she's in Texas. Both NARM and Texas licensed midwives require the NRP by the American Academy of Pediatrics. We don't have any options and list the teach, a list of teachers allowed to teach the in-person part is a very short list. So she's wondering, you know, again, I, and this is the same thing I wonder. We work at home. We don't work at the hospital. When you take the AAP's NRP course, you have to know how to intubate. You have to know how to do things that we're never going to do. And yeah. now NARM has jumped on board with that. What do you think about that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't. I don't think about that because I'm not really, I, you know, just like you kind of knock the, the World Health Organization and, you know, the CDC and all of that. Like, I'm just not feeling like a lot of these organizations really have traditional midwifery at heart. And I think that that is what I'm passionate about. I don't want us to become many hospitals and many obstetricians. That's not the, you know, to me, historically, we're losing something inside of that. Not to say that I don't want to have the skills, but um, I don't have a lot of insight into how NARM and Meek and all of these other accrediting body bodies for midwifery, why they're doing what they're doing. And I don't invest a lot of time and energy into it, except for, of course, if I'm going to be licensed, I have to adhere to them. So that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. So everybody listening, you can, you can interpret between the lines what Bliss is talking about there, because I can see that. Here's what I said to Jasmine was, I said, you can simply, you can out me. What am I saying between the lines that I'm not saying out loud? Licensure is, is a ball and chain that you shouldn't really consider strongly not getting involved with. Well, yeah, it's, it's a tough, it's a really tough decision. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So my response was briefly, because it goes along with what you just said. I said, this is another reason for the growing discontent with big national organizations losing touch with the rank and file, especially NARM, MIAC, like ACOG, Joint Commission, 
the American Academy of Pediatrics, they've all lost their way and love consolidating their dominance. There's no solutions currently. I don't have any solutions. But I think I've told this story on the podcast before, but this is what happens. We, and we all have to be careful about this because when I was a resident, malpractice premiums in California were pretty high and the legislature was working on a law. But what happened was a bunch of doctors decided, you know what, we're going we're gonna to create our own liability company. And we're going to get away from these big insurance companies and we're going to create our own. And they created something called Skippy, which is the Southern California Physicians Insurance Exchange, which is now, I still think, one of the biggest leading malpractice insurance companies in California. But it wasn't started that way. It was started by a bunch of doctors. And what happened after a while is these doctors realized that even though the rates they were offering initially were cheaper, they got greedy and they got big riches and they decided, you know, we're not going to practice anymore. We're going to run this thing and we're going to buy a nice building in Beverly Hills with gold doorknobs on the bathrooms and all that stuff. And we're going to pay ourselves really good salaries. And within about a decade or less, they actually became what they once detested. And they became the big insurance company where they're paying fat salaries to people who weren't doing the work. And it all started. And this is a cautionary tale that, that has been repeated over and over and over again, where you give a group that has a good intention initially a little bit of power, and then they want to consolidate that power and they do it. And that's what I think is going yeah. on here. I think that that one sentence that you said is really like how I'm feeling is that if we're not careful, midwifery is becoming more and more of what we detested about the medical model, you know, that the standardization and the and the skewed informed consent and the over medicalization and defensive charting and you know all of these things it just to me and like sounds pretty much like what we are trying to save people from and save people from is the wrong term i'm tired so don't don't write in about me talking about saving people okay give this little midwife a break <laughs> yeah well all right well i'm going to change the subject entirely and just oh. really just for like 1 minute Talk about ibuprofen. Okay. Okay. So when you have a woman who's in pregnant and she needs an analgesic for something, Bliss, what what do you what do you we tell them we tell them not to take Tylenol. Remember we had Jen Margulis on. This and, one's hard. Yeah. It's hard, but aspirin is an option depending on when where they are in their pregnancy. Although a lot of people don't necessarily feel comfortable with that. So I just try and, you know, help them with whatever it is that their symptoms are for, help navigate that in a different way. Well, this is, this is, but it is. Oh, go ahead. No, I'm just saying it's, it's tough to take the Tylenol completely out. (laughs) Well, this comment has nothing to do with women, by the way. So there's an article that came out that says ibuprofen alters human testicular physiology. And to summarize briefly, what's happening is here, it's disrupting. I mean, we have a lot of reasons why male fertility is falling. Environmental things, toxins, higher estrogen content in certain foods, all kinds of things could, you know, and there are other environmental things we're not going to get into. But when any, any athlete, when they, after they've had a big workout or something like that, they're aching, what do they take? They pop a couple Advil, mm-hmm. right? Well, now there's a study out. And again, of course, this just reiterates my theory that anytime you mess with Mother Nature, mm-hmm. there's going to be ripple effects. There's going to be downstream consequences. And this is another one. Uh, I don't know how pervasive this is. I mean, I've taken Advil all my life. 
Um, I'm not currently trying to have a baby and my testosterone level I know is low because I've had surgery down there. And so I know that things are a little bit lower. But again, just anything that's over the counter medicine, it's an over the counter medication and it's taken like candy. Yeah. And, and it's promoted as if it's safe. Yeah. Like, like, um, <laughs> <laughs> you're sharp today. What? I know. Antibiotics, just like antibiotics, it's overused. Yes. Ibuprofen use, even one 600 milligram dose of ibuprofen can in induce a state of hypogonadism um, from this study. So again, I'm sure it's transient. I don't think it's permanent, but it does lower, it just changes your LH levels. It changes your Sertoli cells. It affects those sorts of things. I don't want to get too much, that's too many weeds to get into, but just another thing to be, you know, to be careful and think of. Okay. Yeah. We're going to talk a little bit about our sponsor needed. We love them. They have an amazing company. And you know what, you guys, your prenatal nutrition isn't cutting it. So they redesigned the prenatal vitamin for you to be optimally nourished. They came out with a new product. I mean, I just feel like every time I turn around, they've got a new amazing product. And this one is an immune support. It's easy to take delicious elderberry powder to support optimal immune health for the whole family. You know, I was hiking the other day and I saw an elderberry bush. You recognized it? Of course not. <laughs> no. Really impressed. No, but the midwife I was with recognized it right away. 70% um, of the immune system resides in the gut. So comprehensive support is needed. Most immune support products aren't designed for all ages and stages. Their immune support is safe and effective for the whole family kids, pregnant, and nursing moms included. So that is perfect for our followers. Yeah, so go to their website at uh, thisisneeded.com and look through their products. I mean, not only do they have a prenatal vitamin, uh, which we recommend, but they have sleep and relaxation support, stress support, hydration support, collagen, a pre and probiotic, which I think is a good thing um, yeah. for a lot of us to be taking, yeah. especially if you have immune issues or if you uh, had recently taken antibiotics or something like that. They have a whole thing for men, so you can men can look at that at their website as well. So again, we love their we love their sponsor. And what makes them different is optimal nutrient forms, dosages that help you thrive, easy to take at all stages of pregnancy. They were formulated with practitioners, and they're recommended by over three thousand women health experts, just like us. And I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I stole your. You stole it. No. Okay. So go to thisisneeded.com. Just spell it out and use the code birthing instincts to get 20% off your first order. Thisisneeded.com. I think you get 20% off every order, but just, mm -hmm. just uh, use the code word birthing instincts at thisisneeded.com. Thanks, Needed. Thank you. Okay. So here's one that, that Sarah wrote to us and just she's something she's been noticing. And maybe you have too. I have not been going to births mm -hmm. lately, but. Maybe you've noticed this. Are you ready? As ready as I'm going to be. <laughs> okay. Have either of you noticed a difference in vegan or veg vegetarian mothers and their placentas versus meat-eating mothers and their placentas? Well, Lindsay Milas did a whole thing about this uh, with the Weston Price Foundation, but no. You haven't? That, no. And I, because I was in LA, I a lot of vegetarian and vegan moms. The thing is, is that you have to work with them on their nutrition because a lot of times vegans and vegetarians, when they're not really thinking about it in that way, um, like nutritionally, which some aren't, they're just eating a lot of carbohydrates, which don't really have a lot of nutritional value. So you start to like 
work with them on what are good sources of protein through their foods, layering beans and seeds and all of that stuff. And you can get someone to be eating really well. Now, do I think that animal products is, is how we were designed to live? I believe that we are carnivores and we were intended, we're part of the food chain. We were intended to eat meat. And I think our body responds better for many people when they are eating meat, but just being someone who looks at a lot of placentas and takes care of a lot of people who have alternative diets, I cannot say that. And I know a lot of midwives have a lot of opinions about this, but for me personally, I feel like my vegan and vegetarian moms have been very healthy. Okay. So again, I don't know. And even when I was practicing, I had very, very few true vegan clients in my practice. Just, I don't yeah. know. Just yeah. That's just the way it worked. Okay. Yeah. So then here's a funny one that Emily sent you and me by text in our podcast group. And I just thought it was funny because you and I both answered her exactly the same way at exactly the same time. But she writes- and Emily is his assistant, by the yeah, way. Yeah, Emily's my assistant. Yeah. And she's got a, a large following of her own. So any contraindications for castor oil at home induction with a blood pressure of 133 over 79? <laughs> Wants to do castor oil instead of a hospital induction tomorrow? And my response was, nope. And then. I said to her, why is she being induced at all? And Emily writes back, high blood pressure. And Blith exactly at the same time texted back, that's not high blood pressure. High blood pressure. <laughs> 140 over 90, six hours apart. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Emily's a doula in this case. I think she's the doula. So uh, I don't expect medical information. But again, this is this mother, unfortunately, now she's had the seeds of doubt planted in her brain that she's hypertensive and she needs to be induced. And so she's going to do castor oil for a blood pressure of 133 over 79. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, and, and lastly, a little bit of sort of humor, but not humor before we get into our topic today of low-lying placentas. This from the Washington Post. When babies go rogue, birth dispatches from McDonald's and more. Okay. I don't know if you saw this article. I can tell by your face you did. Okay. So uh, when babies go rogue, so I just wrote that. I wrote myself, you know, I write notes on my, I print everything out. That's how I can get through this stuff. Interesting choice of words. Rogue. Yeah. Baby you know, going. Baby coming quickly is rogue because our culture decides that, you know, our culture wants to control birth. Yes, very much. And when they, when there's chaos out there that they're not, that they can't control that, that bothers the medical system. If the medical system in their zeal to control birth causes chaos, that's okay because it's their chaos. It's not mm -hmm. nature's chaos. It's right. measured. Yeah, I think we need more going rogue. Right? <laughs> and more babies going rogue. So every, every one of these stories, there's like four or five of these stories are really quick because I highlighted, I just took the highlights out of them. But every one of them has something in it that's exactly the same. And you're going to get the theme after about two of them. You're going to understand what I'm talking about. It's not God, a quiz. What's that? I said, oh God, I hope I can keep <laughs> Not a quiz. Okay. Childbirth is full of unknowns, which perhaps why, which is perhaps why expecting parents work so hard to have a plan. But babies have little regard for adult plans, a trend that some researchers note persists throughout childhood. Another one in the category of, do we really need research for that? Okay. <laughs> Any parent knows that the kid doesn't have a plan. All right. <laughs> but no, no, we have to have researchers tell us this stuff. Okay. So, th so first, first story is born in a pair of overalls. 30 years ago, I was lieutenant colonel in the Army stationed in the D.C. area and pregnant. Late one evening, I began having contractions. They had no room 
Oh, they went to Bethesda, but they had no room, so they were sent to Walter Reed. There, the doctor told me I was in false labor and sent us home. A few hours later, as I was strapped into the passenger seat of our T-Bird heading back to the hospital, I was overcome with an urge to push. My, my husband yelled at me not to push. <laughs> Poor husband. And I'm thinking, he doesn't know what the hell I'm experiencing. I, <laughs> no. I pushed once, and I could feel the baby slip out into the leg of the overalls. Oh, my goodness. Okay. He pulled over. After I got my seatbelt off and the overalls off, there was the baby lying on my leg, a bit blue and not breathing. And I smacked him like I'd seen on Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. Oh, no. Poor little baby. I love these stories. Okay. All right. So then, then she goes on. When the corpsman raced out of the ER to get me, I was only wearing a t-shirt and sandals with the baby still connected. The corpsman said, don't worry, there's hardly anyone in the ER. And I remember thinking, the entire 3rd Infantry could be in there and I wouldn't care. <laughs> okay, so I won't expect you to figure out what I'm talking about after that story, but let's go to the next one. Born in a Honda Accord. I had my second of five children in the front seat of my new Honda Accord. I delivered her by myself. My two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Lucy, was in the back seat in her toddler car seat, patting my shoulder, repeating, It's okay, Mama. It's okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> my husband drove us the four-and-a-half minutes to the hospital, parked us at the curb, and ran for in for help. By the time to return with the labor nurse, I was holding our daughter, Leah, wrapped in Lucy's blankie. Oh, okay. sweet. You're getting, the, you're getting the figuring it out yet or not quite yet? Okay. Car birth? Well, okay, those are car births. All right, let's next one. Born in McDonald's. Around 7 or 8 a.m., the contractions started speeding up as we were driving to the hospital. My husband said, uh, oh, no. I said to my husband, I was like, I got to pee and it can't wait. I really, really got to go. So he pulled into a parking lot at McDonald's. By the way, I always say, I think I said on the podcast before, the best bathrooms to stop in when you're on the road in the middle of nowhere are McDonald's bathrooms because they're generally pretty clean. Anyway, I ran into the bathroom <laughs> before I even got a chance to get off the toilet. My water broke. That would put me into a panic because obviously I didn't want to have my baby in the bathroom of a fast food restaurant. But there was nothing we could do. My daughter's dad took his hoodie off and laid it on the floor and got ready to catch. One employee called 911. Three pushes later, she was born. Everybody calls her Nugget. That's the name McDonald's gave her. They threw her a baby shower and everything. Oh my gosh, that's cute. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to give a clue to what's going on here. Is every one of these women had a baby unassisted all by themselves. And every one of them decided after that to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. This is my point. Yeah. Right. Thank God yeah. we got to the hospital and everything was fine. It's like, it's like go home is what <laughs> I want to tell people. It's like, if you can do it this easily, especially I think all these women are multips. Yeah. Think twice before you decide to go to the hospital. And once you, if you have the baby, as we used to say, BOA or born out of asepsis, you know, on the floor at your house or in the bathroom of your house or in, in your car, call your doctor and say, listen, I just had the baby. Uh, I'm going home. You want to come over? Come over. All right. Or, or call a midwife. Have a midwife to start with. All have right? a midwife to start with. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I have two more. I'm just going to read two more. Born in a powder room. The contraction started again through story time and music class when I was where with my toddler, but I was able to relax and quietly breathe through them. It wasn't until our walk home I realized I was having to pause and lean on the stroller. The next hour or so was a blur of trying to get a hospital bag ready while my daughter napped. My husband and the doula arrived. I can't not push, I told the doula. So less than five minutes after she arrived, the doula made the call, and it was time to head to the hospital. <laughs> God damn it. 
<laughs> Baby's coming now, I said. Okay, replied our overcalm doula. I'm going to have to take your pants off. And she did. I was standing right next to the car with the passenger door open, arms and shoulders resting on the top of the car. I had another contraction where I couldn't not push and felt the baby's head come out. And then I thought, someone should call 911. I looked at my arms and realized I had my cell phone in my hand. I dialed. <laughs> Hi, I just had a baby on the sidewalk and need an ambulance. Okay. Now, there's more. I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. I okay. just, I just, every one of these stories is the same thing. Yeah. Baby's you gone. You just broke. had the baby. Now I need an ambulance. You just had the baby. Now I need to go to the hospital. It's like, wake up people. All right. We need to change the culture and we need to change the way we use language. I love it. Okay. <laughs> we'll probably take a quick break here. We'll be right back to get to our topic. Okay. Woo-hoo. Element's a tasty electrolyte drink. They've been sponsoring us for a while with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a lot of salt and, and with no sugar, as you like to say, none of the... BS, just like us. It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. It's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, paleo diet, but not for our pregnant patients who shouldn't be on any of those, <laughs> okay? Uh, but it's good for pregnant women. It's good for postpartum women. It's good for uh, birth workers. It's good for people who are outside working out. Summer's coming on. It's going to be hot and sweaty. Yeah, and it's grapefruit season. I just got my box. Yeah, well, not only is it grapefruit season, but but they also comes in a bunch of other flavors. Yeah. Watermelon, citrus, orange, raspberry, raw, your favorite. Mango chili. Lemon and chocolate raspberry. Lemon course. habanero. Lemon habanero. What is a habanero anyway? It's a, it's a spicy chili. Okay. Yeah. There you go. You know, the other day I was at a very long birth and we went to get some electrolytes for the mom to see if we could help her with some of the things that she was dealing with. And we, every one of the birth workers that was there had some too. We're like, we all need it. Let's all have some element. Yeah. And, it, com- and it comes in a little packet so that you, you don't have any waste. Right. Like Great. throwing bottles away and stuff like that. You can just use it in your reusable container. We love that. That sort of thing. So we love that. So you go to drink element, that's drink lmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, and you get a free sample pack with any order. Great. Thanks, Element. Thank you. Okay, we're back. Yay. All right. Yay. So um I ha- I have I have two letters to read that are related to our topic. So I think I'll I'll read them. Okay. All right. Just want to make sure it's yep. okay. Okay. All right, here we go. Dear hi, Dr. Stu and Goddess Bliss. Thank you for all that you do. I was wondering if you guys have an episode about placenta previa and low-lying placentas at the 20-week anatomy scan that resolve. I tried to look through the titles and didn't see it, but I know sometimes multiple topics are covered in a single episode. Well, that's from Whitney. And I said, Whitney, we did not have a, we, Bliss and I looked back and we couldn't find one. So uh, here you go. This topic. So here we go. So then I got a letter from Ashley. She's a midwife back East. And she says, I have a separate, I have a client related question for you today. This patient has a low lying placenta that is 1.7 centimeters from the cervical os as of 36 weeks and six days. Today, she is 38 weeks and one day and has a scheduled follow-up scan at 38 weeks and six days to reevaluate the location. The OB recommended that she birth in the hospital because of the placenta not being greater than two centimeters away. Okay, you're going to know what I think about perfectly you even numbers. Like right. She says, what are your thoughts? Would it be if the placenta has not moved further than 1.7 centimeters? Okay. So let me take my glasses off for this one. All right. She's had no bleeding during the pregnancy. All right. She's had no no episodes of something that's worrisome like that. You scan somebody for 
distance from the cervical os, and you could scan them five minutes later, and you're going to get a different number. Uh, so doctors love having a reason to intervene and a reason to do surveillance. So when you have a 20-week scan, and they find a low-lying placenta or even a marginal placenta previa, all right, that's a ticket for you to be put in the high-risk category and then over-surveilled for the rest of the pregnancy. I'm not talking about women that have a central previa or women that have a bleed early in the second trimester, which then puts you in another risk category. I'm talking about an ultrasound finding alone with no symptoms whatsoever. Right. Okay? What's your, you know, before I get into a little bit about this, you know, I've been doing all the talking. Do you have thoughts about, about this topic? I mean, have you seen this before where people have been, their birth plans have been altered or they've been They've been frightened beyond belief because they've been told at a 20-week scan. For sure. And why are we checking at a 20-week scan is my question to you. I don't, I don't even understand. You know, the testing and procedures that we do during pregnancy, if there's not a reason why we're going to change the course of care, why are we, why are we checking those things? Obviously, you want to know that the placenta is not covering the OS. But this is one of those things, Stu. It's like this is in the medical world, right? So this is a this is a midwife working in parallel with the cultural expectations of getting ultrasounds. And traditionally, you know, we wouldn't even know that. We would just be pregnant. We wouldn't be having all of these measurements and things that could possibly go wrong. So I actually just had a client yesterday and that was evaluated by a by a doctor here that I trust and most of the time she's really great she's supportive of home birth but every once in a while that really conservative obstetric mind comes into her recommendations for my clients and I feel like it's challenging because it's not you like all my clients used to go see you and I knew that you know if you really concerned about something you would let them know and and it was something that we should really be paying attention to. And I don't really have that here. Uh, so I did, I did send it to you and just wanted to see what you thought, because this person that I sent my client to this doctor to do an ultrasound, put her on pelvic rest. And I was like, to me, that's overkill. And I just wanted to check in with you about it. And what you had said was, you know, that's something that you used to recommend, but you don't necessarily do that anymore. And that the information, the studies and stuff don't necessarily really, they're not conclusive to support that unless she's had bleeding, which makes sense to me. If someone's had bleeding and this mom has had a previous loss, so she's, you know, a little bit more sensitive about that than maybe some other clients would be. Um, so yeah, it's bothersome to me that we're even checking that. And I know, and, and the doctor did say that it's a very high statistic that it's going to move. But the other thing is that she's checking her in a few weeks. I'm like, why? Why are, why are we? Re I mean, I guess because she's on pelvic rest and she might want to know that she can actually get it on with her husband. But yeah. So anyways, I texted my client. I said, I, I would love to talk to you about this if you want. I, I think that that's a really conservative recommendation the, you know, studies don't support that. So if you want to talk about it, and she said, I'm just so happy that the baby looks so great. And I'm like, good, you should be happy. You deserve to have a joyous pregnancy. And, you know, I'm glad that she's feeling that way instead of, you know, being super nervous about it. But 
it's one of those rabbit holes, right? You can go down and just be, now you've got 20 weeks in your pregnancy that you're totally worried that maybe you're not going to be able to have a vaginal delivery or home birth or whatever. Yeah. Your baby looks great. Now don't think about elephants. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That, yeah. Everything about what you just said, and I know who you're talking about, and I respect this person greatly, but there's absolutely no reason to make that restriction. I don't, again, I don't, unless you have had a bleed, because you have a placenta, as we talked about briefly earlier, uh, I've never heard of a woman having sex with her husband, causing her to lose her baby. If women have a miscarriage, like say at 10 weeks after they had an orgasm, yeah. That wasn't from the sex. That was a miscarriage that hadn't happened yet. Yeah. And all it did is the uterine contractions just sped it up. But it yeah. doesn't, you're not going to you're not going to cause a normal pregnancy to miscarry by having the by doing the act that got the pregnancy there in the first place. It's just that's not how it works. Oh, Somebody has a central previa and has had a bleed, then that's that's one thing. But many women with a, a set of previa have no bleeding during their pregnancy. It is picked up on ultrasound. But to surveil that thing every so often so that you can, you know, again, I know this person, it's not about money. So I think it's not about bringing her back and make, you know, and increasing the charges. But I think it is part of, as you said, the medicalized indoctrination that we have in us uh, as physicians and what we get in residency training programs and stuff like that is very hard to pound that out of you. And so you want to. Yeah. And it's a CYA, you know, it's like. If you see something and something happened and you didn't mention it, you know, that's I mean, even as midwives, we have to give people informed consent. And sometimes you have to tell people stuff that you don't really want to tell people. But if you didn't tell them and something happened, they would be unhappy that you didn't tell them, you know. But, but you I want also to go, oh, go ahead. I want to go back to the language that we use with people when we want to make suggestions. So there's also the ability to be able to say, hey, this is low lying. You could have bleeding. That could happen. Some of the recommendations are that you might want to be on pelvic rest, but you do have options. And you know what I mean? Like to just say that this is what you're going to be doing, especially when it's not your client, that made me feel a little uncomfortable. Um, But yeah, I think it's about how we language things to people as well so that we treat them like adults who can make their own decisions. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a whole point for another podcast, by the way, is people giving <laughs> advice to people who aren't their clients. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing. Well, let me, let me back up for a little bit and let's do a little bit of that. Um, again, we talk about definitions and we, and, and numbers, and this is just a perfect, another perfect example of how n- nobody in the medical world knows anything. And they all think they know everything. All right. So I did some digging for this topic. And there's a great article, which I'm going to get to. It came out in 2019 in the journal of an ultrasound of OBGYN. It's a journal and obstetrics and gynecology. And, it's, and, I'll, and I'll go through it because it's, very, it's a really good article. And it's really well done. And I did read the material and method section. So I, I think that the study was well done. But before that, what's the definition of a low-lying placenta? So yeah. Um, I looked it up, and on a radiological website, which are ultrasound people, anywhere from 0.5 centimeters to 5 centimeters is one of the definitions they use. Some people say less than 2 centimeters is low Mm -hmm. line. Mm -hmm. 
So in other words, 1.99 centimeters is low lying, but 2.00 is not. Okay. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Right. Experts, by the way, never, never trust when you hear the word experts say. I use definitives like never, Stu. Well, we, that's right. We, we never use that definitive never. <laughs> okay. Two to three centimeters in the second trimester, four centimeters in the third trimester. Okay. Okay. None of that stuff is true. Some people will bleed, but most people will not. And the idea that you're going to scare a woman for nine months or half the pregnancy since you found it at 20 weeks. And for what percentage of women actually have a problem? What percentage of those low-lying placentas or marginal previous actually stay marginal previous? And shouldn't that be a number that radiologists and MFMs or anybody scanning people be aware of? So let's look, let's look, because this is what it's so it's so interesting. So this study that came out in the ultrasound in obstetrics and gynecology in 2019 defined low-lying placenta as less than 20 millimeters or two centimeters, okay? Mm -hmm. All right. Those that they, they found a low-lying placenta at 20 weeks, um, only 5% still had a low-lying placenta in the third trimester. So 95% right. resolved, okay? Right. They had... Uh, 958 women in the study, and 958 women that had low-lying placenta, and only 48 still had low-lying placenta or, pre, or partial previa at term, okay? So they're surprisingly, in their study, they recommended that they don't use 20 millimeters anymore, that you only use 5 millimeters if the placenta is anterior. Uh, there's a difference if it's posterior. But if you have an anterior placenta, the distance from the os, if it's greater than 5 millimeters, which is half a centimeter, is not should not be considered an issue at 20 weeks. What's the difference between anterior and posterior with that? Well, I'm going to get to that. Uh, why is that? Different? I'm going to get to oh, that. Oh, okay, great. Okay. So, they said keep 20 millimeters or 2 centimeters for the posterior placenta. So, if you if at 20 weeks you you do a scan and you ask the question why are they even looking? Because there's a code for that. Because they could turn on the color doppler and there's can there's an increased billing code for that. Because as you said, they're covering their ass and they say if they if they don't find a small ventricular septal defect in the heart or something else like that, none of that stuff's going to change the pregnancy or the birth, you know, that much. But they looked for this on everybody. And you know what? We talked about this on our ultrasound podcast that, you know, you turn on the color Doppler, you turn on the 3D, that's higher intensity stuff. Hmm. You know, again, this is sacrilegious in the, in the obstetrical community, but, but unless there's a problem that you notice on growth or something like that at your 20-week anatomy scan, don't turn on the color. Ask your doctor not to turn on the color Doppler. Okay. Color Doppler only finds problems that probably aren't there, but will, <laughs> will scare you and require you to come in for surveillance many, many, many more times. Yes. The baby will often tell you there's a problem because the baby's urine output will be low and you'll have low fluid. The baby won't be growing well. Don't necessarily need to look at all these vessels with color Doppler as a screening tool. That's my feeling. I know that that's going to be outrageous, but nobody who's thinks it's outrageous, actually listens to our podcast anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> um, They found, by the way, that 62% of these women had posterior placentas, and only 38% okay. had anterior placentas, which is interesting, because I don't know why it would, wouldn't be 50-50, you know, anterior-posterior. Maybe, maybe it's the curve of, of the body, you know? 
that might okay. be why. So of the, of the 958 women that were in the study, 297 had anterior placentas. Okay. Mm-hmm. 100% of the women with an anterior low-lying placenta in this study, by the third mm-hmm. trimester, none of them had low-lying placenta anymore which is why they recommend lowering the threshold of calling an anterior placenta low-lying if it's only if it's less than five millimeters, not 20 millimeters. Then you can scare less people. Yeah. All right. Of the 67 women in the study who had an anterior placenta previa, marginal previa, okay, only 10 persisted. So I don't know what percentage that is, but 10 out of 67 people can figure that out. So, you know, like 80-some percent of people who had a marginal placenta previa at 20 weeks had no had did not have that in the third trimester yet god you're going to be scared for three months yeah and the people are going to be talking c-section that's what they're going to be talking to you about for something that's this a low percentage this is the thing that drives you and i me particularly (laughs) crazy yeah is the way the way we just spew fear as if it's not doing any damage because we just want people to know that this could happen it's not whether it could happen or not. It's whether it's likely to happen or not. And then what's likely doesn't mean the same thing to two different people. Yeah. Of the people with a posterior low-lying placenta, 400, let's see, uh, 469 out of 480 re- resolved. So they had 11 that persisted, whereas remember, zero persisted with the anterior. Right. So because 11 persisted, they decided they were going to keep the two, millimeter, uh, two centimeter number the difference again these are all 20 week diagnosis if somebody we'll talk about i'll talk briefly about what happens if it's two centimeters at term or 1.7 centimeters to answer ashley's letter and of the 114 placenta previas with posterior that are posterior placenta previas only 27 persisted so that's about a 25 percent rate of persistence where the other one was like maybe 15 12 percent persistence of the anterior so for some reason the anterior placentas move they don't move, they, they resorb and they grow the, in the other direction, more so than posterior placentas. I don't know why, that, that I don't know. Well, the uterus grows, and so the placenta moves with the growth of the uterus. Correct, but why, why does it move more if the placenta is anterior than posterior? That's, that's the interesting question. Why, is it, why isn't the resolution the same on both anterior and posterior? So I don't know. So, by the way, what you can really reassure somebody is if they have a low-lying placenta and it's anterior, you can tell them that in this study, there was zero that persisted. It makes sense to me, Stu. This is how my brain works. Let's see. Okay, so you imagine the uterus and the way that the uterus and the baby is lying, the belly gives way for the uterus to fill out that portion. But in the back part of, of the, the woman's body, the posterior part of the woman's body, it's more stagnant. Because she's yeah, got her there's, spine. There's bones there, right? Yeah. So it makes sense that as the uterus is growing, it's gonna it's gonna pull more from the front. That part's gonna stretch more. So I don't know. Just that's how I that's how my brain thinks spatially. Well, you could probably design a study for that. <laughs> Anyways, it makes sense to me. No, it's logical. Yeah, it makes sense. But whatever, but it is interesting, it is interesting side data to, to find that. It, and by the way, this study, which I will post in the show notes, if you look in the references, they list other studies, and this was consistent with what other studies found. So this is not an outlier, okay? So lastly, they, they said that 
of the women with a low-lying placenta at 20 weeks, I love this. I love this. 82.6% of them had a vaginal delivery. Okay. Okay. So that means they had a 17.4% C-section rate in people with low-lying placenta. Which is lower than the average. Yeah. Statistic. So I'm saying if you have a low-lying placenta, you have a better chance of having a vaginal delivery than if you don't. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Again, you could play with numbers any way you want to, but for whatever reason, you you know, your chance of delivering vaginally with a low-lying placenta at 20 weeks is the same as if you didn't have a low-lying placenta. So you can skip that. And there was no mention in the study at all of higher rates of postpartum hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. We always talk about, well, the lower uterine segment doesn't clamp down as much and, you know, maybe more aggressive with our, you know, active management of the third stage. And, but this study probably, I mean, was done in hospitals and it was uh, fairly large and they didn't, they didn't report any significant. They reported the vaginal delivery rate, and I would assume, and maybe I'm wrong, but I would assume that if there was a significant postpartum hemorrhage rate, that they would have put that in the study. I can't be right. sure, but since omission does imply that it probably wasn't very relevant, didn't jump out at them. So, so that's 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 about 20 week ultrasounds. Go. I have a question. Yeah. Okay. So if you were doing an ultrasound and you checked location of the placenta and noticed that it was low. And maybe even measured it because that's what people do when they get these ultrasounds. How would you counsel a woman similar to what happened with my client? What would you say to her about her placenta 20 week being low, quote unquote? Well, posterior. When I did my 20 week scans, I really mm -hmm. did not measure that distance. I just didn't. I mean, if, if they didn't have a central previa, I really didn't, didn't didn't change, didn't matter to me, didn't change anything. Okay. I, I, I would much rather have a woman live her life, enjoy an oxytocin and dopamine than, than not. And if she ends up with bleeding, yeah, whether it's spontaneous, whether it's after sex, whether it's after picking up her toddler, then I would have her come in and I would take a look. And I would see why, if I could try to figure out why she was having the bleeding. Yeah. And if I couldn't figure it out, I would often say to them, I think you should probably avoid intercourse right now or orgasm. The reason being is because when you have an intercourse or orgasm, you, you know, your, your uterus contracts and you can cause bleeding. And the last thing you really want to do with your partner is have sex and then go to the bathroom afterwards and see blood coming out of your vagina when you're pregnant. It's freaky. And, it, and then it's going to have, you're going to have post-traumatic problems with that, I think. So, you know, because then you'll be afraid to have sex ever <laughs> again no but certainly while you're, the rest of your pregnancy and i don't know that that's healthy either i don't know that that i don't think that is it's not natural to, okay to, so going back to your your statement early on about having sex is not going to have you lose the baby but if you did have a true previa like let's say somebody didn't do any ultrasounds they had bleeding we decide let's go in and check out and see what's happening because this is a good use of technology to try and figure out why you're having bleeding and how the baby's doing, right? right. So if you detect that you have a previa, whatever degree of it, and that's where the bleeding is coming from, then you would put them on pelvic rest because 100%. if I remember from Desi's story, Desiree, my, yeah, you could have a torrential bleed that could be catastrophic for both mom and baby. Yeah. I mean, when you have a central previa, that that's, 
That's a big difference than what we're talking about here, which is a marginal previa or a low-lying placenta. Yeah. As you can see, those things almost always resolve. A central previa probably will not resolve because the placenta can't move. I mean, it can't right. recede far enough. So if anybody that has bleeding, whether it's explained or unexplained, that would be potentially, especially we're talking about second trimester type stuff, that would be a reason to, you know, probably least until the bleeding completely disappears and there's no more brown discharge to put them on that term pelvic rest, yeah. which okay. inclu includes nothing in the vagina and probably not orgasms either. Okay. So, um, but then once it resolves, if they don't have a placenta previa, I would not tell somebody to spend, be on pelvic rest for the entire pregnancy. Right. Right. If they did it, if they had sex and it happened again, then yeah, then, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. All right. But mm -hmm. I, I think that the, there are downsides, like we talked about in that article about the midwives and the better and the better satisfaction. There, there's much more to, to life than just the physiology of growing the baby. There, there's there's the, the happiness, the relationship, the the all those things that go along with the process of making yeah. it joyful. And that's one of those things. So when people are told to have pelvic rest at 20 weeks for a low-lying placenta, the data doesn't support that. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. So what happens at term? Say, right. what say you've been followed for a low-lying placenta because wrongly so, and it continues to be less than two centimeters from your os, okay? What are your risk factors? And I will say that, again, this is from my own experience. This is not from a paper or a study. The, the idea is let them labor and see what happens, even at home. Nobody's going to bleed out that quickly. And we all know what normal bleeding is in labor, like lochia and a little bit of blood. And sometimes you might see a little bit more. But if it's more than you're comfortable with, then that's enough to say, listen, I'm I think that this is not something that we're comfortable with at home, but let the woman labor and see what happens because most of the time it won't be a problem. But to take that woman and tell her that we need to induce you in a hospital setting or we, or worse yet, your placenta is low lying, we need to do a section on you, which is something that happens every day in our country and other countries, that people are gaslit and told that they have to have a C-section because their placenta is 1.7 centimeters from the internal os and, and it's two, and the two centimeter... Anytime a paper comes out, Bliss, you know how I get about these things. It comes out with a definitive number like that. It's bullshit. Yeah. It's bullshit. They, they are risk averse and they are okay with, with the consequences of their interventions and the risks and damages that causes because, because they were doing it for good. But if we don't do something and something bad happens, we're going to be held responsible. And that's chaos that we can't handle. And, and, and therefore, we're going to intervene not caring that their interventions have led to all the problems that we have in the medical model of obstetric. They're yeah. Total, they're totally oblivious to that. Yeah. Okay. So for a family planning, already planning to do a community-based birth, if the midwife is comfortable, what you're saying is it's a reasonable choice to watch and labor and see how the bleeding is, if it's within normal limits and all of that. For someone who's planning a hospital delivery and an obstetrician is pressuring them to get a C-section for that low-lying, persistent low-lying placenta at term, um, it's reasonable to request to have a trial of labor in the hospital because you're being monitored. You're right there, right? I mean, right. right. And not be induced either. Yeah. It's not an indication. It's not an indication for induction. And it's not an indication for a cesarean section. Unless you've had previous 
bleeds. Even if you've had, well, if you have a previa, that's a different story, but we're not talking about previous. Here. If oh. you have a low-lying placenta, even if you've had previous bleeds, okay. that part, if you've had a previous bleed, that part of the placenta may have infarcted and maybe may be dead anyway and not doing anything. Or it could be a tip of the iceberg and you could labor and that could start to cause a little bit of bleeding, which then causes more separation and leads to sort of almost even like an abruption-like scenario. But you're in the hospital. Right. They're trained for they're, and they're, so just they train for that. And, well, and it's better for the baby even even to have labor come when when nature wants labor to come and then end up with a cesarean is still better for the baby than doing that. Michelle Ladant likes to call the. Uh, what's he called? Not the planned cesarean. I guess he calls it non-labor, cesarean, you know, a, a cesarean without labor. There's a term he uses. I can't remember what it was. Yeah. So I'm just clarifying for those of our listeners that are not birth workers. Uh, and uh, the reason I'm I'm being very specific about the bleeding is because when the placenta is over the os, so the opening of the cervix, as the cervix starts to dilate, then all of those capillaries that are on the other side of the placenta are now open. Just like if we had a partial separation of the placenta that was peeling off the wall, that would that would cause bleeding that could be really bad. What Dr. Stu is talking about is that we're not talking about previa. We're talking about low lying. So the placenta is not covering the opening of the os. Therefore, it's going to be attached, adhered to the wall of the uterus just at a very low location. And so we're hoping that it's enough out of the way that we're not going to be seeing any kind of bleeding. But if we do, that would be a good indication to um, consider being monitored. Right. And afterwards, and it's good to be prepared for possibly more postpartum bleeding, but that doesn't mean that it's going that you, that you should expect it, right? Just be, be prepared for like you're prepared for a shoulder dystocia, you're prepared for this or that or the other thing. You're prepared for it. You've got your IVs hanging, you've got your meds out, you've got all this stuff like you would normally for just about any home birth situation. You don't have IVs hanging. No, no, you have your IV kit available. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like like mine hangs on a door. It just sits there, and it's got all the things in it. But you have to be prepared. But but based on this one fairly large study, they didn't really see that. It said most of the time it resolves. That's great. I'm glad that you uh, that you found that study. Yeah, I I didn't know about it. I mean, that's, I'm glad that we that uh, Whitney asked us to look into this topic because that's a great piece. Of, that's more evidence than I even thought so myself. Um, great. But I know that that women are gaslit constantly being told for no reason to instill, you know, for alleviate the, the doctor's anxiety. They're told they have a low-lying placenta and I want to see you back in four weeks to see what happened to it. Well, there's no point in doing that. She's not bleeding. There's no point in looking at it again. If you want to look at it again at 36 weeks, okay, fine. Look at it again at 36 weeks. But to bring somebody back at 24 weeks and then 28 weeks and then 32 weeks, that, that, there's no indication for that. Yeah. Great. Right. It's timely too, because I'm going to talk to my client later on today about this very topic. So, well, let me let me end that with uh, this is Rachel Stevens Wellness. I don't know if you know who she is. She's at Rachel Stevens Wellness on Instagram, and she wrote to me because she's a fellow traveler that her doctor at 20 weeks told her that she should be on pelvic rest for a low lying placenta, and we we had a conversation. She, I think, I even saw the ultrasound report or something, and I I told her that just what I've been telling everybody the last 20 minutes on the podcast. And so she posted this thing. It's beautiful. She says, 
She's in her workout, pregnancy workout clothes, bumping and moving. I'll be sharing what kind of workouts I'm doing currently with a marginal placenta previa and my in my second trimester. The first OB I talked to suggested I completely stop moving, including not picking up my 11-month-old daughter. As someone who's very active, it didn't sit well with me at all. Pretty good, huh? I mean, she she's a fitness person, all right? Yeah. So this is her life. And if she doesn't get her workout, she doesn't, even, you know, she doesn't feel good. I decided to listen to my intuition and my body. I did some more research and got a second opinion. She says, highly recommend this if something doesn't feel right to you in and out of pregnancy. So even yeah. when you're not pregnant, if you're getting some advice about your car and you don't think it's right, or you, well, you, need, to, you need to get a new carburetor and you get a second opinion before, if it just hits your spidey sense and your spidey tingle, it doesn't feel right. So she said, I consulted with OB Dr. Fishbein at Birthing Instincts, who was incredible and confirmed my intuition was correct. Now, I can't say she won't have a bleed, but I can certainly say that if she has a bleed from exercising and stuff like that, it's not going to be catastrophic. It would be like a little red flag that says, okay, okay, now we need to slow down. Mm -hmm. But to slow, because the, even when you have a placenta previa, most doctors know this, that, that although blood coming out of the vagina in pregnancy at any time other than when you're in labor is very scary. All right. When you have a placenta previa, generally the first bleed that you have with placenta previa is not a catastrophic bleed. It's not going to lead right. to a problem. It will stop. It's kind of like the body saying, hey, hey, I got this problem here. Look at me yep. and let's yep. do something different and let's make a change. But until that happens, taking women out of their comfort zone and their with their partners or with their exercise routine or with their pushing their stroller or picking up their 11 month old, how can you advise a woman? to not pick up her baby. What kind of doctor does that? I mean, is this, again, we've, I don't even label it anymore as dumb doctor dogma, but we, this is dumb doctor dogma. You can't tell a woman to not pick up her 11 month old for, for a low, for a marginal previa or a partial previa and someone who's got no problems and no symptoms yet. Yeah. What are you doing? You're right. Body tells you most of the time, if there's something You're off. You're just and substituting one pathology for what you think might be a different pathology. But your pathology that you're recommending is a guarantee, whereas the other pathology is an unknown. Why would you recommend a guaranteed pathology to this woman to prevent a possible unknown pathology? That's a good, good way of looking at it, I think. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So, again, I want to thank our sponsors, yes. uh, especially our new sponsor, BirthFit, right? Yes. Right. And you can write to us at birthinginstinctspodcast at gmail.com. And the phone number again for the Google Voice is 805-399-0439. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share and make sure that you subscribe so that you get all of our episodes uh, right away. And then please, it really does make a difference if you go onto your podcast app and give us a little review, especially as Stu says, if you want to give us five stars, please, please, please. Because <laughs> it helps, helps other people find us. and. As we were saying in the beginning, you know, the message and the, and our mission and this movement is growing. We want to get it out there so that people know that they have choice and it can be a really beautiful experience. Yeah. And if you have a baby in your car, <laughs> turn around and go home. <laughs> Start with a midwife. <laughs> yeah, you know, guys, people have a midwife involved in their care, even if they're planning a hospital birth with their OB. I know it might be a little added expense, but we've talked about the, the value that we place on giving birth needs to be reevaluated how culture looks at it. But if you have a midwife that you've been talking to, to give you some better tips on nutrition and relaxation and stress reduction and, and nursing and all these things, 
as part of your your prenatal team, then if something like this happens, you can call her. She may not be able to come over, but she'll FaceTime you. Yeah. It's very unlikely your doctor will FaceTime you. Your doctor will, your doctor's secretary who answers the phone will tell you to call 911. And that's as close as you'll probably get to your doctor. That's true. You were, you thought you were delivering on the side of the road, your midwife would get on FaceTime with you. So, and it, and having a midwife as part of your team, no matter what, is invaluable you're going to get a lot of wonderful support. That'll be well worth it. Great seeing you. You too. I'm going to go take- You need to go take a nap. I know exactly. (laughs) Thank you for um, getting this all organized and uh, we'll see you all next week. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 